Hello, and welcome to episode three of the People Still Read Books podcast. I am your host, Will Leach, still trying to, months ahead of time, drum up interest in my own book by doing a podcast about books with authors who are better than me. Today's author, who is better than me, is someone I have been a huge fan of for a very long time. And as he points out in this podcast, even though we have been corresponding over the internet for roughly a decade, we have never actually physically talked to each other until this podcast. He sounds great. I've listened to his podcast all the time, Celebration Rock. Uh, but uh, I've never actually spoken to him over the phone. He's a fellow Midwesterner, fellow uh, uh, media person living, or at least from, <laughs> the real America. It's Stephen Hyden. Stephen Hyden, the author of several books. And his newest one is This Isn't Happening, Radiohead's Kid A in the Beginning of the 21st Century. It is out today, September 29th. Though hopefully you've already pre-ordered it, and therefore it's on its way to you already. Stephen is a terrific, terrific, terrific writer and a very fun guy to talk to. And uh, to me is uh, a callback to really kind of the great, truly great music critics from the past, whether you're talking about Robert Christow or... Of course, Lester Banks, uh, Chuck Klosterman, even uh, from that range. Uh, I think Stephen Hyden is a terrific writer and a wonderful guy. And his book is about Radiohead, a band that I happen to like. And hopefully you like as well. If you like it, you will love that book. And you will certainly enjoy this podcast. We also talk about the process of writing books and kind of the careers kind of put together and how we're really just kind of trying to pedaling as, pedal as fast as we can before we die. Or more to the point, people don't let us write for them anymore. Remind you, as always, follow us on Twitter at Still Read Books. You also follow me at William F. Leach. I'll be tweeting about this podcast. Follow Stephen at Stephen underscore Hyden, S T E V E N underscore H Y D E N. Email us if you would like to, if you have a suggestion for someone that I should talk to, or you would like to promote your own book yourself or your client's book. Email me, people still read books at gmail.com. But for now, here is Stephen Hyden. Remember the book, This Isn't Happening, Radiohead's Kid A in the Beginning of the 21st Century. Here's Steve. I am delighted to have Stephen Hyden here on your book release day. We're not actually talking on the day of the book release, but the podcast is being released uh, on, the, on the day of your book release. So congratulations on uh, your 37th book being published. Uh, you've made it. Oh, man. Well... I, I see you have more books than me. So if I have 37, you have like 68. I, I haven't think, written but. one in 10 years though. You've written like, you were on the pace that I was 10 years ago. I was writing one every two years. And I was like, <laughs> I'll do this forever. And then it stopped. So I do finally have one coming out now, but it's been 10 years. I blame the children as, a, yeah. as I do blame for most things. Well, I might be going into my hiatus period with writing books. So I think it's good to take a break. Yeah. Cause there was about a, a period, like I guess from really 2013, through the end of 2019 where I was working on some kind of book for, you know, I, I, there, were, there were four that I did during that time. So it's probably enough from me for, for now. I think the world has probably gotten their fill of, of my books, but yeah, I just want to say, I'm excited to talk to you. I feel like we have talked online doing DMS or emails. I don't think we've ever actually spoken though. 
I know. And, and this is also one of my favorite, I'm a podcast listening nerd. This is one of my favorite experiences is to talk to someone for the first time who I listen to on a podcast on a regular basis. It, it, remind, it makes me feel like when I was a kid, I imagined like getting to go on the Flintstones and like just hanging out with Fred and Wilma and Barney and everybody. I feel like I'm talking, I'm talking back to my phone right now. I'm talking into my earbuds right now. So I'm delighted. I'm delighted to actually talk to you. I've been a big, as you, I believe you know, I hope you know, that I've been a very big fan of yours uh, for a long time. And so I, I was delighted when I, once I, I had not started this podcast. Um, I, this is only the third episode, but I had not started the podcast yet, but I had, uh, I, when I realized, oh, I want to have, I want to have had none. And your publicist, can we send you a book? I'm like, well, I've already pre-ordered it. So don't worry. So I, I, I have a bookshelf. I don't know if you have this in your home. I still have a bookshelf. At my home, do you still have like an official? Oh, yeah. Do you have like a CD case? Grierson, my friend Tim Grierson, still has like the mounted CD case on the wall. Do you still have that? Well, I have. Um, well, to answer oh, awesome. your first question, I have three bookshelves in my office. I, I love having a physical library surrounding me, and there are instances, especially lately, I've done a couple of pieces that are more historically oriented. So just pulling things off the shelf and looking at them is is so fun, but. Um, no, I have many uh, CD cases in my office, and I actually just bought some shelves to put more CDs up. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a total CD guy. I have vinyl in my office, but I haven't bought a vinyl record in a couple of years. Like, I, I, I'm all in on CDs right now as being my physical format of choice. Yeah, I, I feel like I, I have a, I have my regular books, and then I have a, a different bookshelf. This is the well, you and I both know that uh, this is stuff that I could not have if I still lived in New York City. But the nice thing is, when you leave New York City, I'm like, oh, I've got a space. I have a space for two bookshelves in two separate rooms. This is amazing. And I have, but I have a bookshelf of people that I know, and I know this is the first time we've talked. But yeah, I've always cla- put you in that rarefied air. So I have a sp- I, I have I have a little spot there for Stephen Hyden's. Uh, uh, fourth book on there, and what and as someone as an aficionado, one of the things I like about reading your books, to be honest, is frankly, it's one of the things that I really enjoy about being. I'm I'm also an album completist, which is to say that like I don't think I've listened. I don't even really like Pearl Jam very much, um, <laughs> and I have not, and I don't think I've listened to their last three albums more than the the minute that I bought them, and I still do that too. Uh, the minute that I bought them, I listened to be like, okay, now I don't feel as ripped off, but I never listened to them before. But something about, I like, I am a completist. And so when you are a completist like that, and I've read all of your books, it's exciting for me to see kind of the different variations and the different directions you're going with stuff. And so one of the things I love about this book, about Kid A, well, and I think, I'm assuming everyone will you talk to about the book, and everyone you talk to in general about this stuff, has their their Radiohead story, right? Because one of the things oh, you yeah. point out in the book is Radiohead is this thing that's crossed over our lives for so long that at one point we have our first time we saw them play Creep at the Beach House or first time you saw them live or or so on. And I saw them open for R.E.M., I believe, on the Monster Tour. Yes. And, You're lucky because uh, I, I saw that same tour and I, I got Luscious Jackson was the Oh, did you? Oh, yeah. And Radiohead <laughs> was like, I think, started or ended like the day before my show. So I always felt kind of ripped off no but disrespect see, I to luscious jackson but like that's like yeah, Ben's era of radiohead that would have been pretty this nice. is why i feel like such a dick about this because i did not know them yet i did oh, not yeah. know i knew i knew of them i knew i was the guy that knew creep 
I right. was together new creep. And so therefore, sleepwalked through them doing a classic rock like all like <laughs> the old Bins performance that people have been yelling at them to do for 20 years. I missed it while waiting for creep. And it wasn't like I wasn't like screaming for creep, but it was just the only song I knew. And so uh yeah, that is the that uh, that that is my radiohead story. But to all kind of come out, what I love about this and I, what I think is is why it's so interesting that you that you chose to write a book about uh, Kid A specifically, but Radiohead in general, is they are a band that just i feel like i've lived with radiohead my entire life yeah totally and you know you mentioned creep i think by the way your experience with them in 1995 wasn't all that unusual i think you know people forget that for a long time radiohead had this image of being a one-hit wonder essentially they you know they were they had a big song with creep you know that was part of the mtv buzz bin at the time which was you know at the same time that they were big, it was like Cracker, Jim Blossoms, uh, you know, Candlebox, you know, bands that, you know, I, I like some of those bands, but, you know, pretty indicative of, of, of just like early 90s, sort of like post-grunge type music. And it took them a while to make people realize like, oh, no, this is actually a very major band. You know, they're going to be doing great things. And the Benz was the beginning of that. And I think OK Computer really, you know, solidified their status. Um in that regard but um i forgot the beginning of your question i, I was going on a tangent there like, well no it? for me the, the idea that this band like one of the more fascinating parts of your book that i did not realize because i you know you have a great line in there that talks about how like and i've heard this before but the idea that like you have to have an album that between like the ages of 18 and 22 or a band between the ages of 18 and 22 that really locks in. And it's funny because I love In Rainbows, but I, you know, I was already old by the time right. that In Rainbows came out. So for me, it's just one of my favorite albums. But the thing that I think that, that connects Radiohead to so many people, as you talk about, is In Rainbows was actually the the album, the way that OK Computer is that album for me. Uh, That In Rainbows became that album for like a whole, I wouldn't say new generation, but a whole new uh, easily classified advertising happy demographic. Right. And I remember what you were saying before about like this being a band that you feel like you've grown up with. And I think you and I are around the same age. Like when I first heard Radiohead with Creep, I was around, you know, 14, 15 years old. So I, you know, I was with them on the ground floor, basically. And, you know, once you get to the age that you and I are at, we're in our 40s now, you have a, a bit more perspective, maybe on culture, you, you know, you've been around, you've seen things come and go, and you've noticed certain things that have always been there. And, you know, Radiohead is like that for me, I think of like, Paul Thomas Anderson being like that, in the same way, or, or like, Quentin Tarantino, you know, like I, I remember when their first films came out, I remember caring about their first films and like going to see their films throughout their career. And, you know, writing about Radiohead was a lot of fun in this book because, you know, I had just, you know, my previous book that I wrote by myself was Twilight of the Gods, which was this book about classic rock history and the experience of being someone who wasn't alive in the sixties or early seventies, but who comes to that music later. And, um, through these sort of like mediated uh, formats of like classic rock radio and documentaries and books and all that. And, you know, this experience writing, this isn't happening is obviously a much different thing because, you know, now I'm writing about a band that I remember when they were first coming out. I remember what it was like when Creep became a big music video or what you were alluding to before, like when they were on the MTV beach house and how weird that was and how Tom York, 
jumped into the swimming pool and almost drowned. And, you know, I have all, it's, it's much more of like a firsthand memory of it. And, you know, I think when you write about something like this, you end up inevitably writing about yourself to some degree. So I will confess that Kid A uh, is I, – I, I love Kid A. I think it's one of my favorite Radiohead albums. It's not my favorite Radiohead album. And it was funny. Uh, there's actually a moment in the book where you say, hey, just so now that you're reading the book, go ahead and put Kid A on now. <laughs> you're gonna, you want to listen to it and, and kind of rev up to it. And I, and I did very much enjoy it. And there's something about the album that you're right, particularly from the get-go, as you kind of point out in the book, it – immediately it feels futuristic and like about alienation from technology without specifically being about that to the point not just specifically not being about that in many ways it's not specifically about anything at least the lyrics are not specifically about anything i'm curious about that notion of uh this is one of the reasons i'm really bad about writing about music because i tend to have more of a i'm a very liberal-minded person and i'm like wait the songs how about you just tell me what your song's about and so it's one of the reasons I'm a bad music writer and one of the reasons that you are so good at it. And I'm curious that I have always felt that way about Kid A without necessarily being able to put my finger on why I feel that way about Kid A. I think you could do a good job of kind of describing that. But does the band feel that way? Do they really feel like they look back at it now and like we saw what technology was going to do and that's what we were trying to do? Or, or is that something that we brought to this? Well, to go back to something you said before about like you saying that, you know, I love Radiohead, but Kid A isn't my favorite. Radiohead record. I, I'd say the same thing. It's not my favorite Radiohead record. I, w- I would say that my favorite is probably OK Computer. And that has a lot to do with when it came out. I was 19 years old when that album came out. And I was already really into classic rock music at that time. But I was also into alternative rock. I was on these parallel tracks with that. And I felt like in a way, OK Computer was like bridging the gap between those two tracks. Like when I heard OK Computer, it really did feel like this is my dark side of the moon. This is my pet sounds. You know, it just felt like a major statement. And it, and I, I really feel like it felt like that way to me um, from the get-go. But again, I think that has something to do with the age I was at. I was at a very impressionable age. Like I was ready for an album like that. And OK Computer came along for me. You know, I think the reason I, I chose to write about it is that, I mean, it's a record I love and I think it's an important record, but it was it just offered so many different things that you could that you could hit upon in a book that the way it was made is really interesting where it falls in radiohead's career is really interesting and and where it just falls in the timeline of america you know or the world you know that it is a record that comes out at the beginning of the 21st century right before the bush v gore election you know about a year before 911 really before like the 21st century as we know it has begun. So it just seemed like this is going to be a great opportunity to not just write about an album, but like so many other things, which is what unfolds uh, in the book. You know, as far as like what the band says, I mean, of course they don't say that, you know, they're not going to say like, Oh yeah, we (laughs) predicted the future. Like we're, we're doing all these things. I mean, I think Tom York, you know, one of the stories of this record was that he was very deliberate, I think about not being literal. Like I, I think, with OK Computer, you know, they, they got so much media attention and there were so many, you know, reporters wanting to talk to them and wanting them to expound on the themes of that record that when it came to Kid A, he didn't want to be held down in that sort of box. You know, he wanted the freedom to just make music and almost have the words and the vocals be a part of the whole. Um, 
And that had to do with just, again, people imposing literalism on him. And also, I think, him not liking the sound of his own voice at that point. Um, because I think that Tom York vocal style had become almost like a British rock cliche by then. Uh, there were so many singers emulating that from like Coldplay to Muse to like a bunch of other bands that no one remembers anymore. You know, I, I again, I think it's a little hard to explain. I think it's easier to write about this and I think it comes across in the book, but yeah, I wouldn't say that like, this is a record that is like predicting the future. It's not like a record that like you look at the lyrics and Tom York is saying 20 years from now, we're all going to be on the internet and like the president's going to be a fascist and we're going to be wearing face masks when we go outside. It's more about, like, I feel like it's a record that like could have existed now and a time traveler, it's like it's like an object that you take off a shelf in the year 2020, and then you bring it to 2000, and you're just like, this is from the year 2020. And I'm not going to give you any context for it. There's no narrative with this. It just is what it is. And now you have to try to make sense of it. Um, and like with the lyrics on the record, like to me, it just feels like the way that we process reality on the internet now, where it's just disconnected bits of information being shot at us you know yesterday i woke up sucking a lemon you know uh you know you know you do the best you can the best you can is good enough you know there's like so many lyrics on that record that just read like status updates from a social media account to me and uh you know it in a way i think because of the way our brains are wired now and how they become you know sort of discombobulated by technology in the last 20 years this record is more logical now than it was in 2000 like in 2000 it was deliberately i think chaotic but now media is deliberately chaotic so this album just fits with that in a way do you find you've written uh books of where you've where you've you know, had and you've obviously interviewed uh, many uh, uh, regularly and interviewing on your podcast and for stuff you're doing. You you interview artists all the time. You, you did not do that for this book. We, I'm I'm curious. I'm, do you for a book like this? Um, one of the things I like about this book is it feels. I don't know how this would be improved. Uh, by here's what Tom York thinks about all of this, and here's what Johnny Greenwood thinks about all of this. But I'm curious. Do you? Uh, would you want their voice in this? Do you think the the thing I like about the book is it feels almost a, it feels listener oriented rather than band oriented. And like when you write about the band, there are stories that have been published that you're going off. Some stories have been published other places, maybe some of your own interviewing, but it feels like the the stories almost feel like sagas. You know, they feel like a fan listening to these things and I mean, and someone really loving stuff. Do you like, would you, do you like writing from almost like the outside in like this? Or do you, when you're doing a book, would you rather, do like the official deep dive. Like we were joking before we came on the podcast that both of us have interviewed Jeff Tweedy recently. And I was like, I got a good one. You're like, yeah, I talked to him for three and a half hours and you're dead. <laughs> and like you talked to him for 45 <laughs> minutes on zoom, you know, nothing. And which is of course true. But the point is that you have, you are really, really good at that. Do, is it a, is the shift to go writing completely from the outside? Have you ever interviewed them? Uh, do you, do you, are you curious about that or would you rather go this way that you're going of just completely from the outside? Yeah, like when I conceived the book, I didn't conceive it as like a making of the album book, which would be a situation where you would want to talk to the band and talk to, you know, the engineer and the producer and people that were around the band. You know, that wasn't something I was really interested in. I wanted to write a book really about like what I thought the album was about. 
You know, you mentioned Jeff Tweedy. You know, he just wrote a book called How to Write One Song, where he's talking about the process of songwriting. And he gets very specific. He's talking about, you know, how to use language, how to like record a voice memo, how to like, you know, do all these things. It's really fascinating. And the idea is to encourage other people, uh, you know, the reader to start writing their own songs. And you know, that is really the exception I found when you talk to artists about how they create songs. Because typically, I think a lot of people feel like they're this, you know, that they're sort of like receiving messages from God or something or the Almighty, you know, that you know, they stick their antenna up and all of a sudden they're writing a song and they don't know where they come from. I mean, there's so many songwriters and including some of like the greatest songwriters, you know, Bob Dylan, Tom Petty, you know, Van Morrison. Like I, you read interviews with them. They all say like, I'm not writing my songs. Someone else is writing my songs and they're just going through me. So there's this, there's this sort of like almost like superstition about songwriting with a lot of people, like where they don't really like want to break down their process and, and, and talk about, you know, how something was created not saying necessarily that Radiohead is like that, but you know, I I just feel like sometimes that listener experience that you're talking about is something that I think is just as valid as like an artist talking about like how they wrote a song or, or what a song means to them. Because I think with any work of art, the audience plays a role that's just as important as the artist. Like if if there's no audience for something, then a certain meaning gets lost, you know, like, like often we supply the meaning as listeners, um, you know, like because of when a song might come out, the impact that it has on us, there's no way that the artist could have predicted what, how it was going to affect us and how it was going to uh, you know, impact the culture. And, you know, talking about Kid A specifically, you know, there's so many instances of that record having a significance that there's no way Radiohead could have predicted, you know, starting with nine 11, you know, there's so many people that associate kid a with nine 11, sort of the feeling of nine 11, like what it was like to live through that. And of course, you know, kid a came out, you know, about 11 months before nine 11, you know, there's, you know, I don't think that Tom York had it in his mind that someday Osama bin Laden was going to plan this terrible terrorist attack. And it was going to change the face of, America and the world uh, fr from then on, and there's certainly nothing on the record that is pointing to some future disaster that's going to affect everyone. But like when you listen to the record, especially if you were alive at that time, there's just something in that music that I think evokes the mood of that time more vividly than pretty much any other work of art that you can think of. So, you know, that's like one of the great things about art. And again, I think that has as much to do with us as listeners as it does with the artists and maybe even more so. I do think, you know, one of the things I like about all of your books too, is there is, uh, I, I would call it almost an affable obsessiveness about them. <laughs> well, which, which is to say, uh, you're, you are, you go down rabbit holes that I also go down rabbit holes, uh, with the stuff that I care about, but I don't think it's scary that I do that. I just think it's natural and normal because this thing is awesome. And I totally care about this thing. And, but to the outside, it might seem potentially uh, obsessive a little bit. And so I feel like you do that really well, but I wonder, you know, I, I devoured this book because not again, as we kind of talked about earlier, not only am I a Radiohead fan, but I, they are a band that I have followed 
really since as I said like like high school like I I they're all their twists and turns I think I like King of Limbs a little bit more than you but like you know I I have I have a, the minute King of Limbs came out I listened to it like over and over and over for like several days until I could really like grasp what I had it there's not a lot like I'm a busy person I have now two small children that I cannot believe have ran not run in the room yet during this podcast like there's a <laughs> lot going on so uh the idea but there's only so many people so many bands or so many artists that I will do that still with and I wonder you you are more tapped into obviously uh, much more tapped into like music and current music I in many ways I'm still kind of like I now only have time like like Jeff Tweed's got a new album and that's gonna be all the music I can handle for like the next couple of weeks like I'm gonna have to right. dig into that because I'm a big fan I'm curious do, do you think and you touched on this in the book too with the way with Spotify and the way we interact with music now is is that interaction which to me seems not just important to me but really feels like the way music was experienced among everyone that I knew uh, during that time. Do people still experience music that day? I know we're old, but like, is that connection to not necessarily an album or a song or even a sound, but like literally these people in the band, the fact that you have so many, so many opinions about Ed in, uh, in Radiohead in this book, to me, that is a sort of obsessiveness. I wonder if that, is that still the case? Like, or is 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 that still like almost like a relic from the, from the time that we were waiting in lines at midnight to buy albums? I think so. I think it's still there. You know, I always I'm very sort of uh, fearful or self-conscious about ever being one of those older people who feels like, well, people cared more when I was young than now. Like, no, nobody cares. And, you know, because they're not buying CDs at Best Buy the way I did. And, you know, they're going on their computer and listening to Spotify. You know, as much as I might have issues with streaming services myself, even though I use them all the time. Yeah, I mean, I think. Like I said before, I think it has more to do with the age you are and how when you're a certain age, there's just you're just going to be impacted by things in a very profound way, no matter what, no matter how you're hearing music. Um, so, yeah, I, I think like the, there's a 19-year-old kid right now who is on Spotify and, he's, and that person is hearing a record that – blowing their mind and and that's going to be the record that like all other records are measured against like for the rest of their life you know i have no doubt that that happens um all the time and you know it, it just reminds me of like when i was a kid and i would watch documentaries about the 60s and people would talk about how amazing the 60s were and how if you were in san francisco in 1967 uh, you thought that the world was being reinvented and everything was amazing and I just thought like, well, you know, when I was in Eau Claire, Wisconsin in like 1997, like when I was 19, I thought the world was being reinvented then too. You know, like I thought there were amazing things around me all the time. And it was because I was young and and I was literally experiencing new things like every day. I was hearing new music I'd never heard. I was watching new films. I was, you know, I was like a sponge just learning so much because, you know, there there, there was so much more to learn at that age. Um, and hopefully as you get older, you can preserve that and you're, and you're learning about things that are outside your comfort zone and you can preserve that sense of wonder. You know, I think that is an important part of being alive, but yeah, I mean, I, I, again, like, uh, you know, I can complain about technology with the best of them. I mean, I'm, like I said, I've, I'm like surrounded by CDs in my office, you know, so I'm clearly like a Luddite on, on some level, but you know, again, I think that again, like for the 19 year old now, you know, they have their version of kid a, you know, and 
I may not know what it is, but hopefully they'll tell me and they'll write something really great about it and I'll be able to learn about it. In 15 years, you'll be like, okay, now they're doing oral histories of this album that I that I didn't even – where they were when they heard it the first time, and I still haven't heard it. Uh, that's well, always that's, a fun place. That's one of the great things about music. I, I You know, mm-hmm. they just had that Rolling Stone list, the their 500 mm-hmm. albums of mm-hmm. all time. And, you know, there's things you look on there, and if you've seen other Rolling Stone lists, and I should say, by the way, I voted in that list, and – my number one album, I think, came in at number 38. Like, I voted for Blonde on Blonde, Bob Dylan, you know, quintessential classic rock choice. And um, But there were a lot of other voters in that pool who were much younger, who were voting for albums, in many cases, that may be no older than, like, 10 or 15 years old, you know? And, and it ends up just turning over the canon. And some people get really upset about that. You know, they get really upset that, like, the Jackson Brown record that they love is no longer on the list because now it's been replaced by, you know, a Jay-Z record or a Kanye West record or a Drake record. Um, but I think that's, I think that's good. And I think it's interesting and it, it, it has to happen. You know, those things have to happen. Um, even if it might be weird for you, if, if you've seen other lists and you're not expecting to see your favorite album fall off the canon. I mean, the nice thing is, is that it's not like your favorite records disappear from your collection. If, they're not on a Rolling Stone list. You can still enjoy them if you want. And I know I'm going on a tangent here, but I mean, I, it's just interesting to me to see how personally people take those types of things. And, you know, you coming from like a sports writing background, it's a little bit different because in sports writing, obviously, I guess people talk about like Jordan versus LeBron about who's the best. But it's like we know Michael Jordan won more championships or we can say we know LeBron has more points or I don't know if he does or not, but you know, there's, there's numbers that you can point to that, you know, sort of quantify someone's greatness and you can't do that in music. So it's just this endless argument, you know, that people have about what's significant. I don't know. There's, they're going to be having, like, all I know is it doesn't speak well for, I, I generally am one of those people that thinks Gen X is the right generation and we're the ones that just get kicked in the, like, the, well, to me, true. Like, my, my, jo- my joke about the pandemic is that, like, we're stuck, as always, we're the ones that nobody cares about because we're worried about our kids getting an education and worried about our parents dying. But we're just, we're just trying to, like, nobody gives a, and, and, and all of our culture is pretty much gone. And I find it interesting because uh, I think I'm probably wrong about that <laughs> like well no and I, and I, I mean think that's interesting but l- look at the sports idea like honestly like it doesn't speak well to us that like when lebron james is doing all this when the last dance comes out all of a sudden there's a bunch of gen extras that sound just like those people that the bob costas tell me that mickey mantle was the best baseball player that he ever saw like it like all of a sudden it was like oh my god we right. sound exactly like the boomers that said mickey Mantle was better than these stupid steroided up baseball players well like I, on some level you know i've being an older person, I, I try to be like a self-aware crank sometimes because there are certain <laughs> things where I'm like, no, it was better then. And, but I also have the little wink that I do when I say that, where I, I acknowledge that I do sound like an old person and like I should be ignored probably. But it's like, I also have to be true to myself and to say like, well, I know I, you know, I, I think Pearl Jam still is a great band, even if like young people don't like them. You know, like there's certain things that I'm that I'm that I'm going to hold on to. But I mean, you, I, there is an element of truth though to what you're saying about Gen X. Like, and I, I almost made this joke on Twitter the other day after that Rolling Stone list came out that like Gen Xers, you know, we spent the first half of our lives complaining about the cultural hegemony of 
boomers, and we're going to spend the back half of our lives complaining about the cultural hegemony of millennials. You know, like we're surrounded because I think millennials and, and boomers are like more alike than they would want to admit. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a certain self-absorption that is inherent to both of those people, uh, groups of people. And like as a Gen Xer, I am in the middle of just feeling like a certain amount of annoyance at both groups sometimes, I have to say. Because, uh, yeah, we're all – Because no, we're, we're right. We're, because we're right. We're right. And there's more of them than us. And we're always going to lose. And like our bands, our favorite yeah. – like, like, you know, Pavement – and, uh, you know, built a spill, they're going to get screwed on these lists. And it's going to be like, you know, uh, My Chemical Romance is going to re- replace oh, all of oh, our favorite oh. indie rock bands. It's that just the way it is. Say. But like, at the, ver- at the very least, we get to complain about it. Like, we should be allowed to complain about it because we have no other power otherwise. It's an impotent rage that we have. And uh, we should be entitled to it, I think. <laughs> um, thank you, but please, uh, thank you. I, I will. I'm gonna, that's that, that that last line is going to be my new ringtone, actually. Um, and I'm old, so I still answer my phone. Um, okay, so my my last question is actually specifically about kind of your career and your books, right? You know, we talked a little bit about your career of all writing books. How you might take a break a little bit. I, I'm curious. Th- th- this is a books podcast. Just the industry itself, I, to me, I've been very – I've taken 10 years off from the industry. I said I haven't written a book in 10 years, and this is my first uh, – since Deadspin hit in 2005, this is my first non-sports book. Like I'm I, – I, I, there's all sorts of things I've learned about. It reminds me a little bit when I didn't have a car for 13 years in New York, and then I moved to Georgia. And I was like, hey, look what they're doing with cars now. Wow. There's so many <laughs> things that are different about cars. Like there's no discman on the floor anymore. There's like all sorts of things that cars are doing that are different than they were in 2000. And I find that a little bit about the book industry right now a little bit too. Like I'm discovering all these things that have changed. I'm curious, do you, uh, you've, you've, I say you've been a pretty regular schedule of writing books. Do you, do you still get that satisfaction? Is this something you want to do all the time? Uh, or, or are you comfortable with your section of your bookshelf now? You're like, okay, I've got my four. I can take a, I can take a little break from this. Do you, for all the writing that you do, do books have a special place for that? Or are you getting exhausted and so worn out from when you finish one? Well, you know, I, I just want to say that I feel extremely fortunate that I've been able to do what I've done so far. And, you know, I I don't think I would ever be as presumptuous as to say, like, you know, I'm going to write a book now or maybe I won't write a book now. Like, I'm <laughs> going to take a break for as long as I want. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that, like, you know, unless you're, you know, Stephen King or something, you know, you can't call your shot like that. Sometimes it – um you know, sometimes you get retired because people don't want to buy your pitches anymore, you know, or, uh, you know, I mean, I think for me, like in recent years, one reason I think I wrote so many books in a row was almost like a sense of desperation that like, I got to keep writing these books until they throw me out, you know? Cause like, I, I just feel really fortunate. I felt fortunate that like I had the energy to do it, that I had publishers that wanted to work with me and that like my books did okay. You know, like, again, I think, the hard thing about book publishing is that it's like any form of media right now where you have the blockbuster people at the top who sell a ton of books and they get all the attention from, you know, book reviewers and the media. They're always on top 10 lists, you know, like the Colson Whitehead class of writers, you know, just the brilliant people at the top. And then you have everybody else and the middle class that used to exist. I think it's just shrinking. You know, it's hard to be an author who like, isn't a bestseller, but like, isn't also selling nothing. Like you're still selling a decent amount of books, but like, you're not selling like, you know, 200,000 books or, or 500,000 books. You're, you're doing like more of like a mid-level thing. 
I just wonder like how much room there's going to be for those authors moving forward in the same way that, you know, it's harder to make a movie that isn't like a Marvel movie now, or it's hard to make an album where you're not Adele or Beyonce. Uh, you know, it just seems like such a zero sum game at this point. So I worry about that a little bit moving forward. I, I just feel like that's not getting easier. It, it's getting harder, even for someone like me, who, again, I, I'm very fortunate. I've, I've been able to build a track record, but I don't feel like I can just write my own ticket, like for a book. Like I, you know, when I pitch something, it's got to be a book that I am confident can maybe be somewhat commercial, you know, that is going to sell something. It, it can't just be about my name. It has to be about the topic and, and, and just knowing that there's an audience out there. And I think most authors, you know, operate in that sphere, you know, like we have to, find our little spot in the marketplace that we think we might be able to, to work a little bit and then target our book to that. Um, so yeah, that's going to be interesting to see into the future. I don't know if, if you felt that squeeze at all, but I, I feel that. And I think every, I, it would be hard for me to think that most people don't feel that right now. Yeah, I feel that way about everything. <laughs> I feel that way about all of my writing anyway, right? Like, exactly. Yeah, like you mentioned, you mentioned that thing about the idea that, like, well, I have, I'm doing this desperately. Like, I get asked a lot because you, you and I are Midwestern people. We're productive. We make things. Right. We make a lot of shit, right? And people yeah. are always like, like, wow, like, wow, why are you so? Pro-? I actually talked to Tweety about this a little bit. Like, like, why are you so productive? How do you do this? I'm like, hey, I'm just trying to like. First off, a I went a really long time where nobody nobody paid me to do anything and nobody read anything that I did at all. I can't believe I'm getting away with this now. So I'm just going to keep making things as much as I can because eventually I'm going to assume someone's going to tell me to stop. <laughs> yeah, I'm the exact same way. I had a, you know in my past I had a long time where yeah no one cared what I did and I, I was in total obscurity. So I'm still always surprised and flattered when anyone cares about what I do. Like when you say that you have bought my books, that means so much to me because I, there's still a part of me that feels like I'm just creating stuff and sending it off to, into a void and I don't know who's seeing it, but it's like I, someone must be seeing it cause I'm still allowed to do this. And, uh, you know, and you know, I should also say too, like I love doing what I do. Like I, I like making stuff. I, I, I enjoy writing books. I like doing podcasts. I feel very fortunate again to be doing this for a living, but it is like being a bank robber. I mean, I feel like that is what this job is. Like you are doing something that like, it, it almost doesn't seem like a real job. Like, Oh, it's my job to like write down what I think about culture. Like what a weird thing. And especially, you know, maybe that's the Midwestern thing. I mean, you know, your background is probably similar to mine. There's no one really in my family that has a job remotely no. like mine. And I try no, to explain no. it. My, my parents still uh, have no idea what has happened. When I'm yeah, exactly. Like, you know, and I know there, I know like, yeah, I know my mom's proud of me and I know that, but it's like, they, you try to explain what this job is to like your relatives at a family gathering or something. And they just look at you like you're, well, I find that either people don't understand it at all or they assume that like you're unemployed and you're just like <laughs> pretending to be a writer. You know, it's like, oh, like he wants to be a writer. Like he's trying to be a writer, but he's not really – or maybe he's like, you know, self-publishing books on Amazon and, and like his wife buys his books, but that's it. Um, which is probably – you know, because that's a more common experience. It's it's such a bizarre thing uh, to be a writer. But yeah, it's um, – I mean, I felt this way since the beginning of my career that it's like you're you're sort of racing against 
the career grim reaper you know <laughs> like mm-hmm. your your website could get shut down or like no one wants to buy your books anymore or, you know you're like one step away from career oblivion um and hopefully it's not quite that dire but i mean that's how i feel in my mind all the time yeah this is the best thing about getting old is i'm closer to, to getting away with it until i die <laughs> Right, <laughs> like, like eventually, exactly. like, like that's really the goal. And people always are like, "What's the goal?" The goal is literally to be able to do this, and then like have it go along enough to where like, oh, and then he died. He would still be writing, but he died, and that's I, I find that to be the goal. So, so or good like, luck to both of us, man. Yeah, exactly. To, to make it until death. <laughs> right, or like, I mean, I, I find too that sometimes if you stick around long enough, people feel like. You're part of the furniture or something. It's like, well, we can't kick him out. He's like, yeah. you know, he's like a couch. Like we'd have to lift him out of here and take him out. So it's like, okay, we'll just leave him here for now. Uh, yeah, because the age thing, I think, is a double-edged sword. I, I constantly, I, especially working in music writing, I always feel like I'm, you know, George Blanda to make a sports <laughs> analogy here. I'm like forty-eight-year-old George Blanda. You know, they're gonna like. So, all right, George, you could still kick a 50-yard field goal, but at some point, we're going to have to bring in a younger guy here to do what you do. So, I don't know. All you can do is live in the moment. I mean, I think that's the lesson that we've probably all been reminded of this year. You're just trying to, like, not worry too much about the future and take solace in your family or the simple pleasures that you have in your life and uh, just try to be happy with that in the moment and put one foot in front of the other, I guess. I just said like three cliches in a row there, but uh, I think Stephen, I think they're all true. Stephen, Stephen Hyden and Will Leach, a couple of old couches that aren't dead yet. <laughs> if we ever start a podcast together, let's do that. Let's, uh, I love it. Okay, I am the, the, the book is this isn't happening. Radiohead's Kid A in the beginning of the 21st century. I love the book. I love all the work that you do. Uh, you're right, as you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, we've never actually spoken, though I feel like we've been interacting for a very, very long time. So I'm delighted to get to finally do this. So I, I, I love the book. I love what you do. And please, uh, hopefully, uh, we can keep uh, pedaling as fast as we can ahead of the Reaper <laughs> until we die alone at our desk, <laughs> head down. And then, like, yep, yeah, like our, our loved ones come in and be like, yeah, I guess this is what his happiness was. I guess this is what he wanted. <laughs> That's the most heartwarming thing I've heard all week, Will. So I, I appreciate that. It, yeah. It's a pleasure talking week. with you. I'm glad that we could yes. finally connect. Okay, the book, This Isn't Happening, Radiohead Radiohead's Kid A, in the beginnings of the 21st century. Stephen Hyden, get the book everywhere. It's out today. Today, September 29th. Yes. Uh, buy it. And if you listen to this in the future, it's still available. Uh, unless yes. Democracy's gone and everybody's dead. In which case, you know, there there used to be these things called books. So I don't know why you're listening to this podcast anyway. All right, Stephen, <laughs> uh, have a great one. Be safe uh, and good luck with everything. You too, Will. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.